Hi, I'm Joe. And I'm Matt. We're the NC Wine Guys. Welcome to Cork Talk. In this episode, we talk with Nico Von Cosmos of Stardust Cellars in Wilkesboro, North Carolina. Nico is a fermentation scientist with a background in biochemistry. He is growing and producing biodynamic wines, recreating ancient methods for farming and winemaking. Wine Class with the Wine Mouths is back. This time they teach us about esters and how they can impact the wine's aromas and flavors. This episode is made possible in part by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council. You can learn more about the council by going to their website, ncwine.org. So sit back, pour a glass, and listen. All right, so we're here today with Nico from Stardust Cellars. Nico, welcome to Cork Talk. Thanks for having me. So introduce yourself a little bit, tell folks who you are, and tell us a little bit about Stardust Cellars. Sure. So I am the owner and executive winemaker at Stardust Cellars, where we are creating meads and wines that are sort of avant-garde, where we're taking some old techniques and using a little bit of modern technology to recreate some ancient methods like the ancestral wines and meads um, from the 1500s where we're actually using an overwintering technique um, to manipulate the yeast and native bacteria that are in our wines and meads. So we actually have wild fermentations. We've got a little bit of biodynamics. We're doing um, some fun new experimental flavors with, with new fruits. Um, and we use local beekeepers honey and local, uh, local grapes from Wilkes. Um, to produce our, our wares. And it's, it's, it's pretty fun. We're, we're doing something a little different. I definitely think so. And I think it's awesome that you're really focusing on that kind of hyper, almost hyper-local aspect of it too, because you're really getting a sense of terroir that way. So let's talk a little bit more about the fermentation and the overwintering method, because folks may not be familiar with what that is and what it entails. Sure. So the overwintering method, uh, when it pertains to the ancestral method, is where we are fermenting a batch of wine or mead and effectively letting the natural temperatures, or in our case, we actually control the temperatures in different rooms um, and we actually have a winter room. So what we do is we pick up a tank while it's fermenting, drop it over into our winter room and allow it to naturally start settling during primary fermentation. What that does is it starts to drop the yeast out and allows us to bottle um, sort of a clear um, a clear wine or mead. And then those natural yeasts and, and bacteria from primary fermentation survive. And then that small amount that's in the, in the bottle, after we, after we bottle it from that um, cold, settled batch, it wakes back up and allows it to re-ferment in the bottle. So effectively, it's an ancestral style of winemaking that is how they originally first started making wine at effervescence or sparkling wines. So it's a way of recreating what would naturally happen in uh, these in the 1500s, back when there were monks that were making wines, they would make kind of a late harvest um, wine that would you know slow down because it got so cold, the yeast would just stop fermenting, it'll sort of die down for the winter and then <clears throat> they bottle it and I suppose one of these years the winter came a little earlier than usual and they found that the fermentation uh, had produced these sparkling wines just from the leftover residual sugar re-fermenting in the bottles um, after they bottled. So uh, we're effectively recreating that by having temperature-controlled rooms. Unfortunately, North Carolina doesn't let you just uh, ferment wine out, outdoors, um, but we, our facility is designed to mimic that sort of seasonal change. We actually have a spring a summer and a winter room to kind of 
manipulate the wines to match those kinds of natural temperatures. In that way, we're preserving the natural yeast and bacteria from primary fermentation. Um, so stuff that's just in our local Wilkes community um, is our primary fermentations, and we're just stirring by hand and letting it go. Um, effectively, that makes it so we don't have to use any preservatives. There's no sulfites or what have you. The, the cold temperature of overwintering um, really allows us to manipulate and slow down fermentation and give an advantage to the yeast and bacteria that we want. Um, and so that's, yeah, that's that's the basic gist of it. Um, what that lets us do is just, yeah, have a nice little effervescence, some natural fermentation going, and have a completely sulfite-free um, style of wine. So we're really gearing up to be producing biodynamic wines. So our, our vineyard is um, a biodynamic vineyard. Um, right now we're buying a lot of grapes and honey locally, but we're using biodynamic methods of winemaking and mead making uh, to produce our, our uh, product. Um, so the overwintering is just kind of one part of many that kind of makes Stardust unique. That was a great explanation. I think that uh, certainly keys in on your comment earlier about using old techniques with some new technology with the, the different rooms right. and things that you have. So you mentioned the biodynamic aspect. So talk a little bit more about what that means in the vineyard and in the winery. Sure. So I'll start in the vineyard because that has a little bit more precedence. Um, so biodynamics is an old concept that really, you know, bare bones means living with the land and using systems like natural ecological systems to really create a, I guess, multi-tier approach to uh, vineyard health, um, growth, and sustainability, really. So the goal is to have vineyards that can live for hundreds of years, um, vineyards that are naturally able to fight back things like uh, pathogens, um, and able to have sustained yearly growth um, that's not knocked out by the frost and is able to find its own water sources, etc. So. To do this, we have to really, uh, we really push to have the grapes find their own way, um, kind of find their own water sources. So we, it's a completely non-irrigated land. Um, we don't add any fertilizer to the soil. So everything on the soil is something that has to be broken down in time. So natural fertilizers, for example, our, our sheep that we have, our Southdown baby doll sheep um, that we currently have in our vineyards. So we rotationally graze them from section to section of the vineyard. Um, right now, we have them out um, in a section of vineyard, and they're just eating all the grass and, and leaving behind nice little fertilizer that'll take a lot longer to reach the grapes um, than just throwing NPK fertilizer down. Um, but the kind of fertilizer is a sustained growth fertilizer that really um, aids in the long-term, uh, you know, trace nutrients and long-term longevity, aids in the, uh, you know, breakdown of the soil. And... Uh, there's a, there's a lot of benefits. So not only is it a weed control um, that works by itself, so we don't have to have our you know carbon input of lawn mowers and tractors, uh, you know, taking out the grass constantly. We're also not spraying any you know glyphosates or any kind of sprays. There's no uh, yeah no pesticides, no insecticides, no um, herbicides, no nothing. So. Um, it takes a lot longer to grow this way, um, so we're still buying grapes <laughs> locally, you know, so it's kind of one of those things where you have to really want to do it long term. So it's it's kind of an experimental plot right now, and we're planning to expand that larger <coughs> and larger down the road. Um, other aspects of the vineyard that make it interesting um, <clears throat> is that we do use uh, manure that we 
uh, put into little horns. So these, these horns we bury underground. And what that does, it actually gets the natural uh, microbiome, uh, the little bacteria and everything to, uh, to grow and move and migrate into the horn, into, the, uh, into that manure. Um, and then we, we will mix that and spread that around the vineyard, and that helps to increase the uh, microbiome and diversity and just amount of bacteria and yeast, really, that are able to suppress pathogens on grape leaves as well as growing in the grape soil. Um, another big part of biodynamics is really boosting that microbiome. Um, something we do to help that is we use wood chips all along the base of our grapevines. And wood chips are a great uh, nutrient base for mycorrhizal growth of yeast, that um, fungal growth. Um, and fungus is extremely uh, competitive against bacteria and common pathogens of grapevines. So by having a natural barrier, like an entire mound, every time the raindrops come and they splash down into the ground, they're actually pulling up a small amount of uh, fungal um, anti-competitive, like, effectively, um, fungal spores and, and, and different bacteriosins and any kind of compounds that are going to help to suppress the pathogens that we have here in North Carolina. Um, so that's another part of it, just really having a natural, long-term, sustainable uh, you know, mindset when it comes to viticulture is something that really sets uh, biodynamics apart. Now, there's a lot more to it. Um, we do have a lot of additions of silica and quartz. Um, that's common biodynamics. Uh, we actually get an interesting pass there because we're actually on a very highly quartz-based uh, soil. So that quartz actually helps to uh, heat up the ground and cause the air to move and actually cause it to dry out the grapes, greatly lessens the pathogen base. Um, and in areas where we don't have a high quartz content in the soil, we actually do uh, spray some silica in the spring on some leaves, uh, on our grape leaves, in order to increase the photosynthesis and the amount of light heat that's going on to these leaves. So I guess what I'm trying to say overall, biodynamics of the vineyard is not just throw an NPK fertilizer and some sprays, you know, every few weeks down. It's, there's a lot more to it that really harkens back to a time where we just focused on the land and the natural ecosystems that are present and already working for us. So in the winery, what does that mean for us? It's a kind of a different picture. So we're really um, just trying to be mindful of our wines so we don't add preservatives. So we have sulfite-free wines and meads. Um, our entire lineup of our ancestral needs are all sulfite-free. Um, we're just stirring by hand. Part of biodynamics is conjuring, um, so to speak, conjuring up the native yeast to create a spontaneous fermentation um, by just stirring in a circular fashion. And it's kind of um, harkens back to a day of, of spinning something in solution um, in a clockwise pattern, actually, is kind of this conjuring magic, kind of this ritual. So it's a ritual of, of conjuring a spontaneous fermentation. Um, so there's that aspect. There's also just using natural seasonal temperatures. Another aspect of biodynamic winemaking is racking during uh, full moon cycles, uh, which I know sounds kind of ridiculous, but um, the changes in barometric pressure uh, actually kind of work to suppress the amount of uh, yeast jumbling up into solution. So when you're able to, when you rack, it actually helps to keep your yeast on the bottom of the tank and helps to limit the amount of uh, racking you have to do. And since we're not filtering our wines and our meads, we have noticed that it slightly helps. Um, it's also just a fun way of, of kind of timing things out on a you know moonly basis. <laughs> um, so it, it's 
you know, it, we're really hoping down the line to be using a lot of our own grapes or biodynamic grapes so we can have a certified wine um, that's straight through um, biodynamic from growth to production. Um, but right now we're, we're focusing on what we can do right now. So mostly just production methods right now and starting our, our vineyards out. But right now we're, we're a few years away from being able to harvest our, our grapes <coughs> as a you know, main means of production here. So what varieties have you planted in the vineyard? Yeah, so we've tried quite a few things. Um, so we've been doing Cabernet Franc, Barbera, Cab Sauvignon. I tried, let's see, Traminette as well. Um, and right now we've got Cayuga White um, growing right next to our winery in our, our kind of most experimental plot. That we've got our, our sheep, our big southbound baby doll sheep on. Um, and these... The hybrid grapes we've been leaning towards um, to kind of be a great starting place for our experimental plot here at the winery because we just really want to learn the ropes and make sure, you know, if we put our best foot forward that it's doable. And if we can prove that this experimental plot is doable, uh, we'll be able to expand a lot more varietals and kind of use that as a foundation of, you know, of learning. And so right now we've got um, a, a plot of Cayuga White that was chosen for its resistance to black rot, and at least where I am in Wilkesboro, we have pretty high um, humidity and rain conditions that really uh, have black rot, um, I'd say, as our number one threat. I mean, there's downy and there's powdery mildew, sure, um, but black rot's the real killer um, when it comes to losses. And we also have uh, root borer is another issue in the area that we've been fighting a lot of viticulturalists in our area. So, you know, something that we really wanted to do was make sure that we chose a varietal that was resistant as best possible. So we, really, we looked to the hybrids, and, and this was a grape that was well-known for its black rot resistance. Um, decent powdery, decent, um, decent downy mildew resistance as well, but the black rot was the one that just, there's, there's no organic, easy cure to black rot. And that was just the one that's been making me the most nervous from losses before. I had to completely yank out all of my Cab Franc, all of my Cab Sauv. I've lost a lot of Traminette um, just from the 2018 hurricane um, came through. And we just planted the year before. <laughs> so Black Rock took the whole thing and we weren't able to get it to, to survive. Um, so, you know, learning from mistakes, uh, we wanted to really get our uh, biodynamics down Um and the, the cool thing about Pega White is there's a lot you can do with it. It's something that if you want it to be more like a Riesling, harvest a little early, you can go that route. It's really, it does well with sparklings. Um, it, it just seemed like um, that and Traminette are kind of our two, I'd say, bread and butter uh, grapes here. Just because they seem like really easy to grow, um, potentially biodynamic, uh, North Carolina biodynamic, which is, you know, might be one of the first of its kind. Um, so... We wanted, to, we wanted to do what we could and make sure that it actually worked first before we spread out to red grapes again because those grapes are, are tough. I mean, a lot of people have been able to do organics. You just have to pick a year to, to put them in the ground when there's not hurricane coming. And so we, we had to pull up those. And we're, we're waiting to replant until we get our, uh, I guess, our, our foot a little bit more established um, with the uh, Cayuga White. So. That makes sense for sure. Yeah. And you got to try to time it right, as you mentioned, because hurricane years are devastating where they can be. So. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit again, uh, back up just a little bit to the biodynamic piece. So I think when, when people mm-hmm. think about a vineyard, they typically are, are not thinking about a biodynamic vineyard. So mm-hmm. they're picturing, you know, long rows of, of grapes, you know, tightly manicured, green, verdant, very kind of lush and everything like that. What are the signs of that you're looking at a biodynamic vineyard? 
because obviously, or chances are, if you're looking at a normal vineyard, you're, you're not looking at a biodynamic one. So there's sprays, there's chemicals and everything going on. So are there visual cues that show you, hey, this is biodynamic and this is, you know, laden with everything else that's out there? Yeah, certainly. I mean, one of the biggest, uh, you know, quick, quick tells is, uh, you know, a complete lack of irrigation lines. You'll, you'll notice that, um, you know, the vineyards that start as cellars don't have a single irrigation line or anything wired between them, like the, the rubber tubing you see everywhere. Um, we, we find it kind of comical because it's, you know, we, I'm from the desert, so I'm actually from California. So for me, I, you know, moving to a place with this high of rainfall, I, I kind of laugh a little bit when I go to vineyards and I see that they're, you know, watering the plants. It's like, oh my gosh, it's a, you know, this is the, this is the state where grapes are actually from. Um, so it's, you know, it's just kind of funny to see. But we, uh, that's one sign. The other sign I'd say is uh, clear, you know, uh, a marking of, of, you know, sprays that are going across the baseline of grapes. So, you know, instead of having wood chips or something that would keep, you know, herbs at, or, you know, different uh, weeds, sorry, um, at bay, yeah, instead you have a, like a streak of chemical spray that kind of just goes down the vineyard um, or dirt. And, you know, it's, <laughs> you don't really see dirt easily in uh, North Carolina without sprays, um, or or unless you're just driving heavily on it. Um, but that dirt line is usually maintained by just spraying uh, glyphosate generally. So Roundup is usually the most effective thing, you know, down the line. We we don't do that, um, but that that's generally uh, you know effective here in North Carolina. You know, and, and another big one is you know generally walking around the vineyards there aren't animals. <laughs> rambling around, uh, gnawing at the grass around at your feet, your footsteps. Um, but that's, I, in my opinion, animal, um, the animal and uh, farm relationship is something very beautiful, very sacred to um, biodynamics and something that really makes uh, the longevity and sustainability of, of farms a possibility. Very cool. That, that definitely helps. I mean, you, you don't often see the biodynamic here in North Carolina, and I think it's great that you're, you're, you're going out onto that to really embrace that. So that's awesome. Yeah, we're exploring it. <laughs> so one other thing, let's back up a little bit further then. So you mentioned you're from California. So what inspired you to come here to North Carolina to, you know, start a vineyard, start a, a, a winery, a meadery and, and do what you're doing? Yeah, well, so I'm, I'm actually come from a very uh, academic side that uh, I guess is kind of unique for this area. Um, I studied biochemistry and went on to do, um, food science, and actually have some publications um, in the realm of, of wine microbiology. So I studied partially uh, pathogens in the vineyard. I studied a lot of microbiology, so terrestrial microbiology, um, so soils, uh, plants, as well as, um, of course, the study of the microbiology of wine. Mostly I focused on pathogens, um, spoilage bacteria. I think that kind of got me wanting to live in a place that was a little bit more of a technical and, uh, I don't know, exciting place for microbiologists. Uh, North Carolina has a very unique microbiome um, that changes based on a lot of a lot of variables. Um, North Carolina's weather patterns are constantly shifting. Everywhere in North Carolina has its own, you know, weather, its own soils. Um, so it's kind of uh, the Wild West when it comes to plotting out new vineyards. Um, it's very exciting. And it's where grapes originally are from. So it kind of seems like for a person wanting to do biodynamics, North Carolina actually is one of the more sensible places because, I mean, if you're going to pick a place to, to grow something where nature helps support it, why not choose the place where it actually originated, <laughs> originated from? You know, grapes maybe are coastal, sure, but, um, you know, they grow just fine here in North Carolina um, natively um, through muscadine, et cetera. And, 
there's been a lot of success just in my research of reading about North Carolina's uh, hybrid programs and just the general um, tenacity of farmers out here. Uh, you know, it, it's not like North Carolina is new to the game. Um, you know, the 70s was only a, you know, a revival of something that's been going on here a lot longer um, before Prohibition, of course, pulled out, you know, vineyards and replaced it all with tobacco. But it really, Wilkes itself really drew me in because of its unique environment. The fact that there were a lot of vineyards starting up to, you know, really popping up in recent years is a good sign. Um, land was also, you know, more plentiful and available here than it is in California. You know, just jumping into California would have been just a real uphill battle. I'm not saying North Carolina wine isn't an uphill battle. Uh, everybody who has already formed an opinion in North Carolina wine has made this an uphill battle. Uh, trying to sell North Carolina wine, that's just different. People don't, they think Duplin or they think, you know, the bigger producers. They don't think the small time, you know, winemakers that are doing kind of avant-garde stuff that's kind of new to the area. Um, but that's, you know, that's coming. And uh, I think that's very exciting. I think that's, uh, you know, the chance to do something new and, and really work with, um, you know, experimental work, you know, be one of the first biodynamic vineyards in an area. Um, it just kind of drew me in as, a, as an academic leaning sort of scientist. And I've, I've been working actually at RJ Reynolds as a fermentation scientist um, on tobacco. And there is a need for that as well. It seems like fermentation science um, kind of... <laughs> There's a lot of, of need for fermentation scientists here, and I think I just kind of found a niche. The mead also had kind of drew me in. The honey here is kind of world famous. I mean, Appalachian honey. I think it's just been a real pleasure to be able to work with folks here on an abundance of fruits and different things that are just naturally present here that, you, that we can work with with our meads and our fruited meads. So there's been a lot of aspects. I mean, and honestly, I, I just really love the mountains, the forests, the, the you know, the rivers, the, the lakes. It's just a beautiful area to be around. Um, it's just been inspiring for me. So um, we try and work with all the native um, herbs and everything that's kind of in abundance. I've been doing a lot of uh, wild foraging and, you know, mushroom hunting, and that's all part of Appalachia. So um, there's there's a lot that's that's not just, you know, the business for me that, that kind of draws, draws me to this area. Um, but it definitely is going to keep me here long term. Well, that's exciting because there definitely is a lot going on and, and you're actually situated nicely because you're in the foothills. You can make it to the mountains easily. You can go to, you know, like you mentioned, the coast and everything else like that. So there's a lot here in North Carolina, especially uh, for people to do. And so we're actually at a really good spot to take a quick little break. Uh, when we come back, let's go ahead and talk about the, uh, the wines, the meads, everything that you produce with the local fruits, the honeys and everything else that make you you. All right. Sounds good. It's time for Wine Class with the Wine Mouths. Jesse and Jessica, welcome back. Thank you. So what compound are we talking about today? So today we're going to be discussing esters. Hmm. Okay. Tell us more. <laughs> All right. Well, wine esters come from aphids. And esters are used extensively in the flavor industry for everything from essential oils to candy. Um, but in wine, which is what we are really care about, esters provide the building blocks of fruit flavors. Seems important. Mm -hmm. So a little bit of the science of the compound. An ester is just a chemical compound that comes from an acid where and I'm going to put on my my chemistry major hat here, but um, where the at least one hydroxyl group is going to be replaced with an alkyl group. 
So <laughs> how does this play out in wine? Again, that's all we really care about, right? So esters are formed when the alcohols, the OH hydroxyl group, um, and that can include ethanol, which is a really important alcohol in our, in our wine, and has that OH group. And it reacts with an organic acid molecule that's either native to the grapes or created during fermentation. And then that forms an ester. So a little bit more of the, the chemistry and, and where it's found. Esters are organic acids that occur naturally during fermentation. So they're, again, that byproduct of alcohol reacting with an organic acid molecule. And I'm, I didn't do so great in organic chemistry, but I mean, who does really? But <laughs> so just as a review of that basic wine organic chemistry, as the grapes ferment, Yeasts are naturally consuming or consuming that those natural sugars that are produced when the grapes ripen. And then you get out of that carbon dioxide, alcohol, and then over 200 aromatic esters can exist. Wow. That's a lot. Yeah. So only a few esters are actually generated in the grapes as they ripen. And most are going to be created via the chemical and biological reaction during fermentation. All right. So I guess that would make them secondary compounds. Correct. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. So they're also some of the most volatile and fleeting aroma compounds found in wine, which makes them really both very interesting and very confusing, very elusive. They tend to be unstable, so they either disappear completely or via evaporation or further chemical reactions. So it's common that the fruity characteristics that esters bring to wine are really short-lived, and they can just dissipate within a few months or a year or so after bottling. So, as you may guess, the part of the aging process that changes the aroma, this is part of the aging process that changes the aroma perceptions of older wines as those esters um, drop out. Interesting. And then as you're going through the winemaking process, there's a couple of different things to keep in mind if you want to have these esters more prominent in your wine. So the first thing to think about with winemaking is yeast selection. So they have developed yeast that are better for bringing out these esters and the aromatic forms of them. So you can pick your yeast that's going to give you the ester qualities and that's going to react and, and give you the qualities you want. Whereas if you just let it, you know, use natural yeast, you do not have much control over, you know, the aromas you're going to get in those, those compounds. So depending on what yeast you pick can play into kind of the esters you get and how prominent they are. Uh, so you get a way to control that process in winemaking. That's pretty cool. And then this, yeah. And the second thing with fermentation is temperature. So fermentation and temperature go hand in hand. It's really important to monitor your temperature as you're going through fermentation, but specifically with esters, it's an important part as well because cooler fermentations will keep evaporation at a minimum, like Jess was just saying, you know, esters are very volatile. They can evaporate off very easily. So monitoring that temperature and keeping it cooler will allow more esters to form and kind of stay there. So as a winemaker, you can have a couple of different um, things up your sleeve to help with esters if your goal is to produce, you know, a fruity wine. Who doesn't like a fruity wine? <laughs> yeah, and fruit then forward maybe, is one of my favorite wine descriptors. <laughs> yes. So the, the, the esters talking. 
we're guilty of using that. So maybe next time, instead of saying fruit forward, we will say it has wonderful esters. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Be like what? <laughs> uh, so how it presents in the wine, um, you know, it's the fruit flavors: banana, strawberry, pineapple, citrus, and even some floral notes can be esters as well. Um, there are over 160 different esters in wine, but most of those are at such low concentration levels they're below the human sensory threshold. So you're not going to pick up 160, you know, when you when you're smelling a wine. And the other thing to keep in mind with these esters is if you are getting a strawberry smell in your wine, it is probably an ester, but there are also a ton of different compounds and aromatic compounds in wine that kind of cross over sometimes with their perceived aromas. So, you know, just because you're getting certain flavors, it may be the esters by themselves. It may be esters plus something else. It may be something else. So, um, it's kind of hard to pinpoint exactly, but typically the, the esters are your fruit flavors. And now do they tend to be, uh, any more predominant in white wines or red wines? They are about the same, but they kind of show differently. Um, you know, like with, with red wines, you kind of get your, your typical characteristics, your, you know, your red fruits and that type of thing. Whereas your white wines, you may get more tropical fruits. Um, and there's even, like you can break down esters to specific esters that have a certain thing, such as, and I'm probably going to butcher some of these words, but isoamyl acetate is a specific ester. And that one specifically gives the banana aroma. Hmm. And that's Trying interesting. Then Kim Lab, we, I, you knew you were working with esters when it had that very banana, like very strong, almost fake banana smell to it. So that's interesting. So um, how would how would you go ahead and uh, kind of make the most of these ester flavors in your wine then if you're talking about pairings and things? So a, the thing to consider when pairing your wine and thinking about esters is esters are going to be present in those young, really fruit-forward wines. So you would want to consider a fruit, food pairing that you might consider typically with a fruity wine or a young rosé. So for us, a rosé with something that has a fruit salsa kind of comes to mind, hmm. tacos or a pork chop. Um, Thai curry with a fruity wine might be really good. And it, we recently had green curry mussels that were so good. And I think about them often <laughs> <laughs> and how a nice fruity wine would have paired with that. I think I went with a IPA beer, but I don't know, life choices sometimes live in your gut, but I'll just have to go back and order them again and, and try it with a, a fruitier young wine. You can also never go wrong with a cheese board. You know, or, or even something like a strawberry salad with salmon. That sounds good. They all sound really good tastings. Good pairings, yeah. rather. Well, excellent. Any Anything else on the elusive ester? <laughs> Just keep that there, word in the back of your, like, up your sleeve. That's one that, that's one of the compounds I feel like we're going to talk about that's, that's almost the easiest to identify, you know, fruit. So you can show off in front of your friends and, and call it an ester. Perfect. Well, Jesse, Jessica, thank you very much. This has been very enlightening and we will talk to you again soon. Thank you. Great. You can find out more information about the Wine Mouths by going to their website, winemouths.com or on Facebook and Instagram at Wine Mouths. That's W-I-N-E-M-O-U-T-H-S. And now back to the show.
So we're back with Nico. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about some of the wines and the needs that you have. So uh, walk us through, you know, stuff that's on your tasting list, stuff that you try to make and, and what, you, what you're aiming for there. Certainly. Um, well, as for the wines, right now I've got a Traminette and a Pinot Gris. Actually, in two weeks, I should be um, dropping a Cabernet Franc for a Zay as well. And for each of these wines, we do both the, um, you know, the original pressing wine. So we've got, you know, our our regular, you know, we'll, we'll foot stomp it, we'll press it in a, in a basket press. It's all um, made by hand generally. And then after we do the pressing, we actually take the grapes and we'll put the grapes in their own, um, you know, their own vessels and we'll fill that up with a bit of our our mountain spring water and we'll make a paquette out of it. So we actually get two wines out of every wine we make. So that's, and that's a standard. So every time we make a wine, there's a second wine and that is called a paquette. So a paquette is an old French um, term for a kind of second, second use of a wine, kind of a reuse of a, of a wine to make a light refreshing, um, potentially lightly effervescent, kind of uh, funkier light, um, generally, you know, low ABV wine that uh, takes on a different sort of life. So our, our piquettes have a uh, very interesting high fruit, like high skin uh, flavor that really sets it apart from the original pressed wine. So I like to release the two at the same time. Um, so for example, our Pinot Gris uh, is, I think a, yeah, we have a 13% alcohol Pinot Gris um, and then its counterpart is a uh, 4% uh, Pinot Gris Paquette that comes off um, as a really nice red um, red color. Now, this is Pinot Gris is actually a red grape. Normally, we make a white wine out of it. So we actually released a you know, white wine and a red Paquette out of the same uh, pressed batch. Um, and making these wines is really fun because it's, uh, you know, it's sulfite-free. So we allow the natural spontaneous fermentation to take over in the onset where our our paquette, since it's only reaching a low percent alcohol, it actually ends up with a completely different mix of fermentation um, characteristics. So its microbiome is actually heavily, um, you know, bacteria-based uh, or heavily, um, you know, non-saccharomyces yeast-based, um, which really makes it drink more like a kombucha almost um, in terms of a, you know, funky... Um, you know, all over the place sort of complexity. Um, that's really, uh, really interesting. And so I actually was able to get these, um, these rich, uh, you know, bitter raspberry notes um, off of the skins themselves um, from the, you know, grape tannins, etc. cetera. Um, it adds a little bit of astringency to it. Um, but the, the grape funk that I got from the, uh, you know, the wild fermentation in our ancestral method, we actually, you know, we slowed it down, um, dropped out a lot of the sediment, dropped out most of the yeast, and then that secondary fermentation in the bottle is just really light. It's a nice, like, effervescence that's just really enjoyable and pleasurable. Um, but the, the funk and the, you know, the, the higher tannin kind of balances itself out, um, where our piquettes are really a standalone, beautiful wine. You know, a lot of times people produce piquette and it seems like kind of a flabby version of the, you know, the first pressing wine, you know, whatever. But um, we find that the spontaneous fermentation really allows it to set itself apart as its own unique, um, almost varietal. I mean, the, the red Pinot Gris that we get from our piquette and then our white, you know, clear uh, first pressing is a completely different wine. 
Um, so that's just a really fun thing that we get to do, uh, you know, in the, the sustainability world. So our our traminette really gets a nice um, a, a nice floral um, tropical fruit note that's a really beautiful. Opens up with a nice light effervescence that we get from our ancestral method, which just makes it a perfect, beautiful summer sipping drink, um, and that's it, really lovely. Um, our traminette is. Uh, we actually do multiple versions of, so we have it um, both as our, you know, Pinot Gris or, or as, our, as our Piquette, as our regular wine, but we also do like a sweeter version that we put on tap at our tap room. So we always have that that we, um, we actually blend and make mimosas for $3 at our tap room, which is super fun. Um, uh, um, the Traminette uh, Piquette actually comes out as kind of this minty, um, this really interesting minty flavor. Um, so... We have that going. We've got our Pinot Gris, um, which is a lot more of like an herbaceous, uh, very, yeah, like more of a green straw, like um, like a light drink. But then the, the Piquette version of it is just all over the place, funky with <laughs> raspberry. Um, and then we have a red wine where, you know, instead of using our local Wilkes grapes, we actually have um, a Spanish grape uh, shipment that comes to us uh, from a village in the northeastern Spain. Um, and I kind of cheat for this one. It's the one thing we do that's not from local, um, but that's because I have family in Spain. So we kind of, <laughs> we ship from out there and, uh, and we get a little blend of Syrah, Tempranillo, Grenache, and Carignan um, to make a little homage uh, wine. That's uh, our Corazon del Castillo. Um, this is our Reserva that we age in some French oak barrels. But uh, with our, our red wine, we do it completely uh, gravity fed, so nothing touches anything electronic. Um, so it's all, um, you know, stumped and mashed by hand. Uh, so we do our, you know, three times a day punch downs all by hand. Um, we actually lift it up and we pour it out the top um, using Apollo um, egg tanks. Um, and by pouring out the top, we're actually just splashing um, through gravity um, into the lower tanks to, uh, to settle. We use a malolactic fermentation. Um, or just stir by hand until that happens. Um, and it's a really lovely, uh, I don't know, really lovely bottle. It's kind of our flagship reds. So a little bit of history in our reds is I started off trying to make a lot of <laughs> red wine. Um, hurricanes and, the, and, and just difficulty with doing biodynamics with red wines um, just kept setting us back to the point of, of really focus, refocusing on white hybrid grapes. Um, so the, the red wine is kind of our flagship, like here's, here's our red and that's what we're doing for now. So we actually don't have plans to make other reds uh, right now with Wilkes grapes, um, just because we've been focusing so much on needs and our whites. Um, so that's, that's kind of our, our specialty in it. I think it's okay to kind of have a, you know, a specialty for your, for your area, you know, really work with the terroir and what you got. So. Exactly. Work, work with something that is actually going to deliver what you want it to, instead of struggling with something that may or may not get you the results. Exactly. And that's something that we really learned from a lot of folks who came here before us. Um, so a lot of people who were around in the 70s and they're first putting in those graves um, and just the struggles they had. And part of that learning was just, you know, do what you do, what does well here and really excel at that. And, you know, if you have a spare time to mess around and do experimental stuff, that's great. But, um, you know, really, we have a lot of potential here that's been untapped. Um, so I think it's time for us to really focus in on what works and really grow that as a brand, you know, a North Carolina brand. Um, so I don't see anything wrong with that. Totally agree. So that was some of your, your wines. Uh, talk a little bit about your meads, because you mentioned the honey a couple of times, and that's always a, we, we love mead, so we always love hearing more about mead. Yeah, glad to hear. Um, yeah, so our meads are really special to me. Um, 
These are uh, these are made with a lot of a lot of love. So our honey all comes from local uh, beekeepers. We actually put Appalachia on our label. Um, it's not wine, so we don't get to use uh, you know AVA or anything. But we just say Appalachia because that's that's kind of where the heart is with these meads. So we we get all our honey from Appalachian uh, beekeepers. Some of the the ones in the past that we've used are Hidden Happiness. Uh, that's just up the hill um, between Wilkes Batauga. And we've actually used uh, B Towns Honey a few times. Um, who is the guy who started uh, Merle Fest? He's uh, kind of Wilkesboro famous. And uh, also have uh, made some collaboration brews uh, with Shea Martin Lovett. Uh, he's a local uh, bluegrass musician. And uh, and also with Mother's Finest Family Urban Farm. So that's a uh, black-owned uh, uh, bee farm or apiary. Um, that is, I mean, we're, we're starting to do a lot bigger collaborations with their Scotch bonnet honey um, that they do. They have, they have their own infused honey that they make. Um, so, you know, the big part of the, the meat game for us is use the best quality honey that we can find. Um, so that's a huge, uh, a huge corner that often gets cut by the larger meaderies. Um, and we use it completely raw. So there's no heat whatsoever applied. We actually do it cold. Um, we use cold spring water um, from our mountain here in the brushies. So it's completely cold water, cold honey. And if you ever stored, uh, stirred cold water uh, with cold honey before, <laughs> it's a lot of work. But I swear it's worth it because our honeys come out with the you know, most preserved uh, flavors and smells of the original beehive. A lot of times when people drink our meads, they, they'll pour in their glass and they'll smell and they'll say, oh, wow, it smells like I've stuck my head inside of the middle of a beehive. It just You can smell all the pollen and the original uh, aromas that you often lose through the heating process um, that the larger commercial meaderies are using. Um, so we have a real artisanal mead style. So we limit all our batches to 230-gallon uh, egg-shaped fermenters. Uh, the egg shape allows for the, that fermentation size when it ferments to naturally start uh, evolving and mixing in solution. Uh, now we have a completely spontaneous fermentation uh, meat approach, so we actually stir it until it starts to uh, starts to ferment. You'll notice a little bit of this kind of nice uh, light sourness to it, a little bit of funk to it. Um, you get a breadiness to it that really, I think, accentuates the honey flavors. Um, you know, honey and bread go really well together, of course. So that, that yeastiness um, really drives the meat. So we, we, want, we like to really preserve the, the natural wild yeast. Um, and compared to, our, um, compared to our wines, this is definitely more of a yeast-driven fermentation. Uh, we, we end up getting a lot more, like, bready uh, flavors. But we do sometimes, every batch is different, so it really depends on the honey and the wild yeast and bacteria at the time, but we've had um, some of our newest batch that we got from the Towns honey um, end up turning into something that tastes like a beautiful lambic um, sort of style mead. So the, the wild fermentation really did a, a beautiful light souring to it that's just delicious. So with the different batches that come out, we'll be producing different flavors. So our more like lambic styles, where we're saving for more of our ancestral mead and potentially our, our peach mead, like stuff that really works with that style. Um, our wild fermentations that come out more of a more of a neutral or more of a bready sort of flavor. Um, we pair with more of our our lighter, um, like our, our more fruity, uh, like strawberry flavored meads, or um, with our Viking blood. That's more of a, it's a cherry uh, vanilla mead. Um, so we've got it. It really starts off with that fermentation and and seeing what that end result is. 
Um, it keeps us on the t on our toes, which is really fun. So we've got a lot of different flavors that we can kind of assign the different batches to, um, depending on what we think that fruit uh, flavor or like what the ester profile is looking like it's going to be. Um, and so we really we really have an ancient style of mead making. So you know raw honey, you know local water, pull it from the ground, stir it by hand until it ferments. Pretty simple. The the area where the technology comes in is our ancestral mead, as we call it, is is really made using the ancestral uh, method, just driven really hard. So we, we slow the fermentation down at a specific amount of sugar, um, and we slow it down to uh, drop all the yeast out, you know, any bacteria that's in there out. Um, and we rack it, you know, a couple times in our cold room. That's It's, you know, below freezing temperature, so it really drops it, allows it to settle. Um, allows us to get away with no filtration, no clarification, no nothing of that sort, you know, no sulfites ever added. Um, and from there, we're able to, you know, make so many different varietals just by using local, uh, you know, local um, fruits, herbs. I do a lot of wild foraging for uh, mountain mint that's up in the, grows up in the brushies. Um, we grab different wild fruits. Um, blackberries grow everywhere in Wilkes. We always grab that yes. to make our, our meat keto. Um, we have local cherries, uh, local peaches, um, all sorts of stuff that we need. So uh, we have a we have ten different flavors that effectively come from our ancestral mead, and then mix depending on how it's coming out um, with local fruits, um, local herbs, um, until we're able to produce something uh, that is cleared, settled, um, and ready to bottle. And then from there, we we, we bottle it, put it into our spring room. And that overwintering, you know, we bottle when it's cold, it wakes up in the spring room, we get something that's effervescent. Um, and the, the hard part, of course, with the spontaneous fermentation is, is keeping that uh, from being an explosive sort of issue. Uh, right. Most folks in the wine world aren't used to live fermentations. Now, we like to tell people it's like craft beer, um, because, you know, in beer, if you have something that says, please keep refrigerated, and you leave it out and you don't refrigerate it, you know, you realize, oh, you know, I should have refrigerated it. Uh, in our world, we get people really mad at us, even though we put on the label, please refrigerate uh, our, our flavored meads. Uh, it's the same thing as anything, you know, with, with natural fruit sugars. Um, we we actually are going to start expanding, uh, you know, more shelf-stable products. That's something that we've learned recently. Um, right now, our ancestral and our hybrid grape, um, grape and honey mead, which is pretty much a 50-50 piment of just a, a wild, spontaneous wine and a spontaneous mead blended together. So it actually is low residual sugar. Um, but those two are shelf-stable, so we tell people that. Um, but that's, that's one thing that we've run into is how to have, you know, how to sell something that's natural that has some residual sugar. Cause we've, we just found that people love that residual sugar. I mean, I love, I love the dry meads, but there's just in our region, people I think have really turned out in droves to enjoy, um, our, our, you know, off sweet or, or sorry, off dry meads that really have that lovely, uh, natural fruit juice in it. Something that really, uh, I think people have kind of lost, um, is that you, you actually, with, with refrigeration, you don't have to play the game of either having something that's a sweet wine that's chock full of preservatives, um, you know, or sterile to a bone, or have something that's bone dry or sour that's, you know, hard to drink a lot of. I think people in this region, we've found who just engaging with our customers, uh, really appreciate the wild fermentation, but just don't want to just drink you know, that dry sourness that you get from some of those, the wild fermentation 
uh, uh, places that just let it go and go and go. So that's something that ancestral method really does right is we're able to end the uh, fermentation early before it gets so sour that it's undrinkable. <laughs> um, we're able to really slow it down and, and get these meads to the point where they can be both an enjoyable, pleasurable, you know, lightly refreshing, a little bit of sweetness, you know, that natural fruit sweetness, but also get that rounded out, um, you know, high alcohol. Uh, you get that the bubbly, you get that refreshing, you know, natural fruit, acid zing, you get the, the zing from the, uh, you know, the carbonation in the bottle that adds carbonic acid, so you get that acidity. Um, so there's a lot of components that you get from ancestral method um, that really add complexity that I think a lot of meads are missing. A lot of meads on the shelves that I've found, um, you know, just generally have this kind of monotone flavor, um, you know, where they have like a fruit, or they have an herb, or they have, you know, this or that, but, you know, and it's just like this hard alcohol, you know, that's still... Um, we're trying to kind of break the mold where, where it comes to like an exciting, fun, you know, really multi-component meat experience. Um, and I think we're, we're really pushing for that. And I think we're doing okay at it. But that's, that's the vision for it. So something that's wild fermented, um, you know, funky, but also inviting and refreshing. It's something you can drink a lot of day to day. And we want to really have a little bit for everybody to so still have, you know, some of those really those drier style meats. But we're branching out into a new space. So we're actually one of the first meaderies to be in you know, Lowe's Foods in the in the cold, you know, North Carolina craft brew section, you know, side by side with beers. So um, we've got uh, a whole bunch of stuff. We got Rooster's Peach, uh, Blueberry Basil, uh, Viking's Blood, so Cherry Vanilla. We've got Rum Barrel Aged Meads. We've got the Amitito. Um, we've got Amita Colada style. So these are these are like cocktails. We found that we can really do a lot um, by mimicking cocktails. And that's something that people click with. So you go to restaurants instead of ordering a cocktail that you have to mix and serve. We have bartenders able to just pour something that's already a cocktail, you know, a rum barrel aged meat colada. Boom, it's ready, it's on tap. Um, so that's something we've been hitting a lot of, um, you know, going out to restaurants and bars. I think that's uh, that's a big feature of me, just being able to just be, you know, a cocktail replacement. Um, I think it just makes it easier on bartenders, especially with short staffing. Um, you know, these days, we found just a lot of people really being turned on by that idea. Sure. So. so uh, a good good segue into talking a little bit. You, you've hit on it some uh, with, with some of what you just said, but maybe talk a little bit more about what your business model is and how it kind of differs from a, a traditional winery or meadery. Yeah, so this is um, this is an interesting meadery, right? So we're we're very much a grassroots uh, sort of organization. Um, we really are trying to spread things out as fast as possible. I mean, we have a pretty quick growth trajectory. You know, I, I have a day job. <laughs> I, you know, we're, we're trying to hustle as hard as we can to really get things on the shelves now because I just, I really feel like um, meat is hitting this trajectory where we kind of got to jump in now and get our foot in the door. Um, being one of the first meaderies to hit grocery stores um, is a huge deal for us. Um, so, Right now, the idea originally was to be, you know, we, were, we actually got into the game as a winery, uh, so we were producing a lot of, you know, high-end, nice artisanal wines and meads that had kind of a select, limited audience. And one of the issues with that is I spent most of my time going place to place. You know, out of every 15 or so tastings I did at bottle shops, I'd have one or two that were like, well... I guess we could try North Carolina wine. It doesn't sell well because, you know, it's North Carolina. We do a lot better selling California wine, but whatever, we'll try it. And that'll have, you know, and we did that for a while. And uh, it just didn't really get to the point where, 
it looked like we would hit any sort of profit margin. You know, one of the problems with wineries is our overhead is, you know, to the point where if we're not hitting six, $8,000 a month in sales, we're actually operating at net loss. So, you know, everybody having two jobs only works for so long. Um, so one of the ideas was actually splitting off and, and creating a competitive um, kind of edge with our mead. So originally our ancestral mead was in 750 mil bottles. Um, we found that that just wasn't moving very fast. A lot of feedback was people just wanted single serve, you know, something that they could drink themselves. Mead's also too experimental still. Like I'd say we're, we're at the very beginning of that, exper that exponential growth curve of mead, in my opinion. Um, so people are still learning about it. I'd say, you know, nine out of 10 people in North Carolina still don't know what mead tastes like, you know, and we compare that to beer where, you know, more than nine out of 10 people know beer and, and really wine for that matter. Uh, so we're, we're definitely at a stage where we want to make mead that's more uh, conducive to getting the word out. You know, I want more people. One of my first big decisions, and this actually, I wrote a grant uh, to the Wilkes Economic Development, um, or Wilkes EDC. Uh, so they, they actually were able to uh, help fund a grant to get my first allotment of 330 mil bottles. Now, <laughs> 330s are not 375s. 375s right. uh, and 750s and 1.5 liter bottles are kind of the industry standard for wine. Um, 330s are competitive against beer. Uh, so this choice was made to actually uh, be something that could be side-by-side -side compared um, in grocery stores in North Carolina. Um, a huge issue with that is it's actually illegal to cross state lines with. Um, so the 330 mil bottles are only legal in North Carolina because North Carolina actually uh, countrywide federal law has it that you actually can only produce wine in allotments of multiples of 187. So you do 187, 375, 750, 1.5 liter, et cetera. Um, so it's kind of a, it was an interesting competitive choice, um, but I think at the time was just seeing that the market really needed mead to be competitive with beer and not wine. Um, so that really drew me to wanting to create a uh, kind of beer sizing. So instead of messing with, uh, you know, federal, you know, legal size measurements where we had to serve it in a large, you know, larger bottle, that was kind of bulky. Like the 375s just don't seem as appealing. Um, the slender, something that looks like, you know, a 12 ounce bottle uh, really, uh, I don't know, it made a difference. All of a sudden, we started finding that we could sell in grocery stores, and people started coming to us really excited for the single-serve options, um, except the, the big issue we found next was that we were only selling to wine snobs. Uh, we were only selling to people who like dry wines, um, people who liked, um, you know, the really unique, funky, you know, you know wine, the like yeasty and bacterial tastes and smells that come with, you know, people who really love wild spontaneous stuff and that's awesome um but that limited us uh severely because we just you know nine times out of ten people are gonna be really turned off by something that tastes uh the way that mead naturally tastes and there's nothing we can do about that like mead is unique it's a it's it's a rich very uh you know very intense bready funky you know uh high alcohol uh you know dry honey not everybody likes honey to begin with uh taste so to further diversify our portfolio, we decided to start looking into fruited meads. Now, people don't like dry meads so much, or at least it really cuts a large clientele off. Um, so what we're doing, and we're actually kind of, I think, one of the first of uh, doing is actually, yeah, tagging together the wild fermentation, like the funkiness, like that exciting, you know, wild ferment that people really enjoy 
but they just can't do the dryness. We're, we're using wild fruits and allowing, you know, a, a natural fruit sugar um, concentration that allows it to actually be approachable to a larger and larger uh, group of people. So our business plan has all along been make something um, like that really is um, on a pedestal of, you know, wild fermentation, sustainable, biodynamic, um, you know, but then try and find a way of giving that to into people's hands um, that makes it universally approachable. Um, and, and practical, really. Um, there's no reason that biodynamics has to be, in, you know, on the outskirts of the fringes of, you know, uh, when really biodynamics is sustainable, it's, it's really not that hard as long as you put the effort into doing an artisanal small batch style of mead making. But we have it in a way that's actually quite scalable. Um, you know, we've built a facility that just means more tanks, more people, but we can keep scaling up and up and up to service all of North Carolina, really. Um, and beyond. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of our, our, our business model is just um, do something that really is microbiologically sound, um, something that really gets all of the most amazing aspects of ancestral um, um, winemaking and bead making and just, and just make it something enjoyable, and fun and really exciting. Um, part of that is also the marketing and branding. So we're really pushing beautiful, you know, uh, fun foil and beautiful art designs, but also pairing that with a lot of community projects. So um, really pairing with local fundraisers and charities to really drive, you know, um, not just our brand, but be like a community center that works around, um, you know, helping beekeepers and working with them. So we've, we've really been vocal about um, our partnerships and collaborations with restaurants and um, with different producers and beekeepers. Um, so we're, we're very excited for our our collaboration brews and wherever that takes us with, you know, mother's finest and, um, et cetera. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of the, the idea. So it's a lot of marketing, branding, um, really working on community engagement at the same time as just getting something fun and exciting into people's hands. Excellent. So kind of switching gears a little bit and maybe getting back into more of the farming aspects. Uh, one of the topics that we're, kind of focusing on a little bit this season is climate change. So talk to us a little bit about how the changing climate is impacting some of your biodynamic farming, maybe even being able to source honey, um, that sort of thing. Yeah, so uh, global warming is definitely affecting our region. Um, we are, you know, in a rainforest, so to speak, um, as temperatures increase, as we get more, um, you know, influence of pathogens and insects, um, et cetera. Uh, we're talking about an annual increase in, you know, applications of pesticides and herbicides, um, an annual increase in, in carbon dioxide emissions from, you know, the need to constantly mow everything around us. You know, the grass is growing faster and faster as there's more and more CO2 um, in the atmosphere and more heat coming down. Um, so, there's, there's definitely a lot of different elements that are going to affect us. Um, the grapes we choose are a huge part of that. Um, one of the reasons that I wanted to have grapes that are, you know, really the best foot forward is, is pathogen suppression. And a big part of pathogen suppression long term, you know, in biodynamics, so we're talking 100, 200 years, and we're talking biodynamics. We're not talking 20 to 30 like we are with non-biodynamics um, in a lot of vineyards. Um, you know, we talk those kinds of years, we have to incorporate global warming to a, a you know, large degree in our estimates and our predictions. 
Um, and global warming is one of the biggest drivers, in my opinion, as to why growing red grapes here um, is just not a good 100-year plan. I think it's a great 20-, 30-year plan. I think red red grapes have – I think they're up and coming in North Carolina. I think we have a great 50-year trajectory. Um, but as for somebody who's looking at 100, 200 years, I just don't – I don't know. I, I feel way more secure in growing hybrid grapes that are – earlier season harvesting, um, you know, something that I can harvest a month ahead of time, um, get them out of there before hurricane season begins because the hurricanes are becoming more and more devastating year to year. So I just really want to avoid that, you know, late summer, uh, you know, hurricane season that's going to wreck and lose a lot, a lot of our, you know, annual harvest. Um, the other big element is insects um, and pathogens that are going to be just you know, living around with stagnant water and heat. Um, so one of the programs that I'm trying to uh, trying to work towards is just having uh, more and more insect control through just, you know, populations of, of uh, different organisms. So right now I just have, you know, sheep, <laughs> which aren't super effective against bugs. Um, but my plan is in the next few years uh, to start working with ducks. Um, I've been studying some... Uh, biodynamic techniques down in Chile where they've been having a lot of success with flocks of ducks. Um, I actually went to visit Matatich um, uh, vineyards down in Santiago in Chile. Um, and they have a really great program with their ducks where they're able to migrate them uh, across their vineyards and they've been able to suppress their bug populations. Uh, one of our biggest growing uh, threats, I'd say, to the annual foliage would be the uh, the June bugs, you know, those uh, the beetles that come through, uh, the Japanese beetles that come through every year, um, they just really wreak havoc on our foliar crop to the point of losing probably 60%, I'd say, uh, foliar on our younger vines, um, which is devastating. I mean, it sets right. us back years uh, to have that much bug damage uh, year to year um, on our young vines. It really it makes it take a few extra years to reach the canopies, um, which for you know, for biodynamics, it takes five or six years for our uh, our vines to reach the uh, our cordon wires, uh, which is kind of wild if you think about it, because um, you know a lot of non-biodynamic vineyards we're looking at two or three years until they're up there. Um, for us, it's six or seven. Um, so when you're looking at at the bug damage increasing as global warming um, grows, we have to really look at you know natural uh, biological methods. So ducks are a huge one. Um, I'm also working with uh, bird populations. Um, so as as insect populations grow, bird populations will grow to match that naturally. As bird populations increase, uh, when the bugs leave, the grapes are uh, growing on the vines. So we're going to look at increased bug uh, uh, grape damage from just having higher numbers of birds that are just left hungry after the you know after the giant uh, bug harvest in the summer. Um, so one of the programs I'm actually going to start working on this year um, is a natural uh, bird of prey program. So I'm going to be throwing uh, slabs of meat on top of um, a dugout that we have <laughs> overlooking our vineyard. Um, and that's something that over the next few decades, you know, as temperatures rise and we get more bugs, more birds, et cetera, it's actually going to make a sizable difference to have natural uh, predation. Um, just scaring off the birds that would normally cause damage to the vines is, is kind of a is an old ancient tactic, um, but one that we've kind of let go ever since uh, bird netting has come to the surface. But um, that's something I'm very excited about uh, planning out. Another thing that you can do, of course, is just growing grapes that are a little bit more abundant. They're able to, um, you know, 
allow for more damage. Um, now, red grapes, since we're, you know, we're really uh, dropping a lot of grapes and trying to concentrate, when the birds come through, that's, that's uh, really devastating. Um, but the damage to a large hybrid grape species like um, Pega White, where it has larger, um, you know, larger leaves, hardier leaves, um, the grapes are more protected, they're tougher skinned, um, they're also generally, we're not going to be um, concentrating it as much as we would with the red. Um, so our white wine grapes are actually able to survive um, insect and bird damage to a higher degree. So that's another aspect of global warming is just, yeah, uh, planning out what kind of varietals and what kind of growth um, patterns, you know, shoot positioning, et cetera, um, that you want to really you know, work with. And, uh, you know, with, with pathogens and global warming, you know, higher temperatures and more water, we're talking increased pathogen growth. So we have to really tighten up our canopies. Um, we have to really work with grapes that can uh, do well with vertical shoot positionings, but I, I generally use something that really allows water to just be on a straight wall, something that really evaporates off rapidly. Um, I found vertical shoot positioning with a high quartz soil content to be very effective in drying off um, leaves that are that are you know up on the wires um, as fast as possible. Uh, I'm sure there's more effective ways. You know, there's a lot of experiment experimentation to do still, but that's one you know tried and true uh, method, of course. Is you know and that's classic. That's pretty industry standard. Um, not really reinventing the wheel on that one, but it, it really works. So I'm not. I haven't had a mess with that. <laughs> Very cool. Lots to consider, and, and certainly um, challenges get harder, it seems, as, as the years progress. So as we, as we wind down, um, let's maybe tell folks where they can find your tap room physically and then where, where they can find you virtually on both the Internet and on social media. Certainly. So the tap room is in Wilkesboro, uh, just outside of downtown. It's at 1202B, 1202B, Curtis Bridge Road in Wilkesboro, uh, 28697 zip code. So that is uh, our main tap room. So we've got 24 taps. We have our meads and some of our wines on tap uh, that are constantly rotating, plus all North Carolina beers. So we've got, I think right now, 13 North Carolina beers on tap there, um, and eight of our meads that are kind of rotating constantly. Um, we have a big outdoor uh, beer garden. We have a music venue every Friday night. Um, in 2022 at seven o'clock, we're gonna have a live band from North Carolina or the surrounding areas um, playing. Sometimes we get people from Nashville and Chicago out. Um, but yeah, so that's that's a fun place to visit um, and enjoy some of our wines and needs, um, some local North Carolina terroir. Um, but we also have uh, our products across the state. So we've actually um, recently uh, found our way into Lowe's Foods. You'll find us in Lowe's Foods grocery stores across the state. Um, as well as select restaurants and bars um, and bottle shops um, all over the place. So, um, you know, we're, we're really spreading out um, and we're actually just got our Ohio permit and we're going to be working on our uh, Georgia permit next. So we're uh, going to be <laughs> quickly expanding out to some other states here soon. Um, but yeah, very excited about, about all that. Very cool. And if folks want to learn more about you online, they can go to your website. Yeah, so our website is at stardustsellers.com. You'll be able to find a lot of information between our winemaker's blog, where I post some information about pet gnats, ancestral method, overwintering, et cetera. Um, I've also got a lot of information about what we do, our mission, and uh, a little bit more information about Wilkes and what to do when you're out here. Um, so I recommend visiting that site. You'll also find us on Instagram, at Stardust Sellers, and on Facebook, Stardust Sellers and Taproom. 
So those are our different uh, social media accounts and, and ways to reach out. Um, yeah, please uh, keep in contact. Um, it's uh, <laughs> we're gonna be doing a lot of a lot of things every year. I feel like two years ago, a lot, uh, half of what I said was just uh, kind of an idea. So um, <laughs> we'll see what happens. We'll have to touch base again soon. Well, we definitely right. recommend people get out there and visit because it is definitely a great experience. You do yeah, some really for good sure. Stuff. And I guess you know I grew up in Wilkesboro, so uh, I would never have thought you know something like Stardust or even the other wine wineries in in the eastern part of the county would have ever existed growing up. So it's really cool to see uh, what's happening, and uh, it's a great area, um, lots of natural beauty, and and it's great to see you know places like Stardust taking advantage of everything that's available in that area. Thank you. Appreciate it. Perfect. Well, Nico, we definitely appreciate the conversation, and we'll be uh, we'll be in touch soon. Thank All right. Till next time. <laughs> That's it for this episode of Cork Talk. Thanks again to Nico. He's proving that biodynamic farming and winemaking have a place here in North Carolina, and we think everyone should think of how they can have a positive impact on the environment. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. It helps others find Cork Talk and lets us know how we can improve. Did you know we have a Patreon page? You'll get patron-only content, early access to each show, and more when you sign up. You can find out more information at patreon.com slash talk. And don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NC Wine Guys. Until next time, and remember, the cork only talks when it's out of the bottle. Cheers! Cork Talk is a free-run LLC production. This episode is made possible in part by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council.